It's October 20th. Welcome to the Ansons Podcast. We are in the middle of a series we call Power of Story, and this is episode three, Hope versus Dread. But before we go into the podcast, I wanted to make you aware of a really unique opportunity. The Become Good Soil Intensive is one of Wild at Heart's premier leadership training events, and it's been catalytic for men from around the globe for over a decade. It's based on the content of Morgan Snyder's book, Becoming a King, and it's a chance for you to dive deep into the journey of masculine initiation. Now, the mission of this event is to gather a like-hearted fellowship of peers and allow them to lean into the counsel of wiser guides who have traveled more of the ancient path before them. It's limited to 84 participants, and there's a one-to-one ratio of men who attend and seasoned guides who help them. Now, if you want to find out more, I encourage you to go to becomegoodsoil.com. The target age range for the men who will be part of this are 25 to 40. Attending a Wild at Heart boot camp or a Wild at Heart basic first is a prerequisite. So if you haven't done that yet, that's your next step to attending a future Become Good Soil event. You can find out more information at this website, again, it's becomegoodsoil.com, and the deadline for submitting your completed application is November 1st. If this sounds like something you're interested in, it's a great way to continue the journey that you've been on. And now, here's this week's podcast with Sam and Blaine. One of the lenses I want to suggest would be to consider the gospel through the lens of initiation. We feel responsible to have a kind of 30-minute conversation that ends with the sitcom making sense. Uh, no. Sometimes the vision can cause you to stop. The vision doesn't drive you. The vision can actually constrain you. You just think, well, gosh, that's way bigger than I am. That's way bigger than my skills. If your spiritual life does not have a regular dose of adventure to it, it's not going to sustain the masculine soul. Guys, welcome back to the Ansons podcast. It's just Blaine and I in the studio today, which is kind of different for the last few weeks. We've kind of been on a rampage of other people, which have all been really good. But yeah, I needed, I needed, I needed more of us. I don't know about you, but I needed some more, some more of just. Yeah, I definitely need more of me, that's for sure. Today, we're talking about something that I've been thinking about a lot, and um, it's one that kind of was in the, the works for a book I was working on, which died somewhere along the way. And it's... Most the, books do. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel any better, actually. This is on the stories that cultures tell themselves and what that reveals about the culture. That was a theme of my sophomore year in high school English class. So Really? So I'm you're saying I'm this definitely is pretty prepared. elementary for you that you're saying? Are you going to go back in that folder from No, I'm just saying I have 10, 11 years ago. Mrs. Austin. Mrs. Austin. Thanks very much. So, stories. What do I mean by that? I want to start with a current study that was done. I'm not going to pull the actual stuff because if you want to find out more about it, you can look it up. I think people like anecdotes more. The story is that a a university did a test with 33 students and they put in front of them several different shapes. They had to watch this little 
film that had shapes moving across the screen and then describe what they saw. 32 of them created a story. One of them said that they just saw geometric shapes moving across a plane. The other 32 of the 33 described the small triangle and the large triangle, the, the, these oppressive, the, they, they like created an entire narrative that was actually very similar across the 32 of them. They like anthropomorphized these shapes and, and create a story around it. Um, and I think that people were kind of blown away by that, that there is this deep intrinsic need in people to create meaning and story out of what we're presented with, even if it's literally a circle and two triangles. Yeah, I think the point I'm immediately going to, since you raised the topic, is that the kinds of stories that we tell are indicative of worldview Mm -hmm. and that the frame uh, that you introduce into any culture is going to sort of just reveal the expectations of that culture for human flourishing, for anxiety, certainly for the sort of ambiguous existential dread that ours Ooh, reveals. I know. I know. We're going to get there, though. We're going to get there. I'm struck by how story has followed and evolved human history over time. It's almost like story has kind of followed along Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the way that they began in giving purpose and explanation to our world, understanding who we are, where we came from. I mean, you've got just so stories. You have oral tradition. You have Prometheus stealing fire from the gods and giving it to humanity. You have these layers of story, which we still have today, which I, you know, I would argue will kind of touch on certainly epic in the way that you know Padre has has and begins most events with like let's reframe the story that we're in because of how important that is. But on this hierarchy, like you don't really get into self-actualization and your particular purpose without world building first, without laying the foundations of, holy crap, where did man get the power of fire from? And how come leopards have spots? And that elephant has a really long nose. I just think it's so interesting that we have to begin, we don't have to, we choose to begin telling ourselves story there long before we get to the point today where you can look at popular stories and from them learn something of the culture. Ours are definitely unique insofar as you actually have individual actors. Like, that's totally new to cultural story. As you know from your ancient language scholar friends, the base unit of action in the Old Testament is the we. The base unit of the actor, the individual, is actually the individual community. So you never get all the way down to something like personal destiny. You have communal destiny. But I think the things that I would... You know, the common trends you could point to would be uh, the recognition of a lost past. If you are in Rome, then you are pumped when the sort of imperialist Virgil creates a narrative that links you to the history of civilization itself through the Aeneid. If you are an Anglo-Saxon, you have the ubisunt, the where is it, that the thing that you start with is reflection on the good old days. If you go to the Native American traditions, with very few exceptions, especially sort of across the northern part of the United States, you have something that begins with looking back upon an Edenic history. Like, 
it's built into us to know that we have departed a state of grace. Pascal observed that. And then the other thing that I would just observe without going right to like in the middle where we oriented is they have these beginning, middle, end, but you have the beginning, which is looking back upon a state of lost grace. And then we're looking, but we're very often looking forward to in sort of the highest level sense, some profound restoration where we know because of the movie Thor Ragnarok that Ragnarok is sort of the great battle in Norse mythology when Baldur dies and Thor dies and everyone else dies. But significantly, the world is like reborn after Ragnarok. And so it's not apocalypse in the way that we would frame it. It's like the crescendo where things will come to a head beyond which we can anticipate life being restored. And you can actually, I mean, certainly like the Native American traditions I'm familiar with would sync up with that. Most of the things that you could point to in like way Southeast Asian, Mohenjo-Daro, like those would all be the same. And it's interesting to go, wow, if cultures are sort of supposed to orient themselves or inclined towards orienting themselves between like a state of lost grace and anticipated grace, ours is really different. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting as we talk about story that humanity has a pretty similar framework for ways that stories are structured, ways that stories unfold. You have the hero cycle that is, you know, the hero with a thousand faces across a bunch of cultures. There's another guy that wrote a book. I'm not going to remember his name at the moment, but he postulated there's basically seven plots that unfold. There's the trials, there's victories, there's rags to riches, there's comedies. There's just, I mean, Shakespeare had four categories. Sure. I mean, he has like, right, definitely. People you like just, to get grope. I just, mean, sure. I mean, what, you're I mean, getting I mean, my mind going here, man. Because, well, just the, I think the most recent thing I read about Shakespeare was that like, he actually has just two plots, which is new guy comes to town or guy goes on a journey. Sure. There's just something really powerful about human beings like you were talking about earlier we have we have a flow an orientation a conflict and a direction that we're heading what i'm interested in as well is that stories have unfolded in lots of different ways when you think about them there's been the oral tradition i think of music and certainly that then there was the written and its many forms and these days we have the visual which has many different mediums lengths and styles, television and film, prominent among them. And there's, there seems to be, in, along with that direction, there's also, like in my allusion earlier to the hierarchy, there's this, you have to establish the world before you can get to self, because self matters, but self has to exist into a, a context. And, and that's where, like, oral tradition, like, began. You were telling yourself context. You were saying, like, this is how the world is created. Like, all mythologies they're trying to place ourselves in a particular space. Now, I'm also aware that stories respond to one another. So it's not like we had one story and everybody was like, oh, that's pretty good. Like, that's, uh, that's, that's the story. You hear a story from someone, a fable, a joke. You hear a limerick from someone. And it's natural to either respond to it, withdraw from it, copy it like you you can't help but react to it and so within the world of story culturally you are kind of given a glimpse into 
into the nature of where people are. So we could go down so many different rabbit trails of why the arc matters, why there's the beginning, middle, and end. You know, Padre spends quite a lot of time in Epic talking about how so many stories are pointing towards ours and drawing power from ours. Villain, fall, redemption, that there are just intrinsic natures to powerful stories because ours has them. I don't want to go down those. They're good. They're worth They're worth spending time down. This one is one that I think is just going to be kind of a shorter and different take on it because I think stories, music, oral, visual, written, reveal things. They're like little periscopes into cultures. And I think that we can use them to look on other times and look on our own and see what we might like actually it might teach us some things from what's going on right now. So for me, I think the progression that one of the things that I want to name is there's the orientation stories, right? There's the just so there's the, this is where fire came from. This is like the world we live in type stories. Then there's like the, the more present like context. It's not just like, this is the way the world is and it's flat or the sun revolves around the earth type deals. It's, this is who you are as a culture a story to that, I was in a post office in Prague several years ago, and we were talking about national identities and sto- the way that like countries were l- focusing on telling a culture and telling themselves a story about themselves because it would bring them closer together. And so you had all of these people creating national dishes and saying like, this has been our, our root, this, this is our culture. And over and over again, it was meat and potatoes and the, our professor was like, really? I mean, everybody's national dish over here is meat and potatoes. Like that's just what people ate. You're trying to create a story where there isn't one. And we're sitting in this post office and he invited us to kind of look around because this is a place where they're trying to create a national identity. And it could have been in the United States. The colors were red, white, and blue. And there were eagles and people carrying big flags all over the place. Like it was so interesting to see how in terms of a national identity, they were pulling on one that was older. Moving on, I think where I really want to be landing in is the cultural stories because I think they give us a window in. And I want to read you a list. I've created a little list here for you. And I want you to, I want you to respond afterwards to the story that these tell you and like what, what this makes, how this makes you feel. So I pulled, and I realize I can, I get to be kind of, um, or I get to orchestrate this here. So I realize this isn't, you know, great science. But I pulled the top television shows over several decades. And I, I'm just going gonna, gonna to read them to you. So here we go. I Love Lucy. Leave it to Beaver. Jeopardy. Star Trek. Sanford and Son. M.A.S.H. Late Night with David Letterman, Friends, Sex in the City, American Idol, Lost, The Office, The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, House of Cards, Stranger Things. What do you what do you feel? What do you what do you react to when you hear that list read in that order? It's fun to hear the like the old ones right right next. I think what I, I'm aware of is just to separate that and like, you know, there's 
everyday life, there's competition, and then there's epic. And they, they, like, it might be clustered into like one of the three or like situational comedy, game show, and then like narrative-driven story. I think, well, you know what I'm aware of, obviously, Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy might be kind of sort of different animals given our distance from them. But I'm struck by maybe one thing each category. Uh, The situational comedy, sort of the farce of everyday existence where what they sort of need to feed you is just sort of one irritating or confounding relational situation after another. But there's no, like, I just think of muddling through as the solution. I'm I'm much more interested in the second two where I just go, wow, I know that there's this thing that you're passionate about that's actually might be most reflected in the game shows, which has to do with where success, where heroes, and where talent come from. And you have like a pretty fascinating obsession with the come from nowhere, happen onto the spotlight, win the competition model of success and model of, you know, what could be called our culture's variation of heroism, of like, you did it. You are Carrie Underwood. You are your town's hero forever. And then obviously, you know, I think of whenever I look at ones that are like narrative-driven, I begin to go into a hole of darkness where it's like, wait a minute, there's, okay, so we can't get away from Joseph Campbell, so we still have the hero's journey reflected even in The Walking Dead. But what we don't have is like the the massiveness of conflict that would be sort of classically represented in a story maybe before the Second World War where like the epic examples are easy, but you're like, Okay, so here's what happens. You have gods involved in the affairs of human beings. Good and evil are always on the table. Heroes are people who are actually drafted into those conflicts by one way or another, often through their lineage, often because of the clan or family they become involved in. And then they're like fighting finally for the the restored shape of the world versus like, Everything is chaos. Try to stay alive. And then the thing about The Walking Dead that gets me is like, it shows how shows like that will go like, there will be this core thing of, we, you know, we we have to have hope or we have to have, you know, you got to keep some, it's usually hope, got to keep hope alive. But like, there's nothing in the framework of the story to actually support that. Where it's like, I kind of think that what you are functionally is, a nihilist of a storyteller, but you are, but you know that even as our culture will go with you, most viewers will be so repulsed on a deep level by utter meaninglessness. You have to throw in something that's like, yeah, but you know, you got to do the right thing. And it's like, that's your solution to the need for context, to the need for an organizing theme. Well, and you know the big plot twist with uh, The Walking Dead, which they really slowly work towards, is that the living, the ones that aren't zombies yet, are actually all carriers of the zombie virus. And so when they die, they will turn into more zombies. And so The Walking Dead 
is a play on words because it's actually that the living are the ones that are the walking, they're just the walking dead. And so hope, yeah, kind of, maybe we can survive, but when you die, you're just going to join the enemy. <laughs> we're getting, we're getting totally into like the cultural comments that's current. What I'm struck by when I read, when I hear this list and read this list is uh, like the, both in the narrative and the game show and the sitcoms, like there's, there's so much of, of culture and focus revealed, right? Like there's this, I love Lucy, leave it to Beaver is, is trying to, is doing this collective. This is where we are as a country. We like, we have this, this home, this comedy, we're building the suburban identity, right? And then Jeopardy, kind of the first game show is like started in this, started in the 50s, six, no, 64 is this like the first of its kind of, you can, you can kind of come into wealth and you, you kind of know these, like the, the trivia. It's just it's this interesting, whimsical way of attaining things that are better, but maybe you don't. Maybe you bet it all and you lose it all. There's a whimsy to it in a way that there's not in American Idol where you, you do not receive enough votes from the masses. And so like a gladiator in the arena, you are left behind. Like it's, it's nice and glamorous, but I'm just surprised that there's not more like, hey, we're okay with the name. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. So as we move to like Star Trek, Sanford and Sons, MASH, you're getting these like visions of the future, visions of the past that are really kind of trying. This is, there's an optimism as, as there's, there's darkness. They're wrestling with that as well. But you get into the late night with David Letterman and friends and sex in the city. And, and all of a sudden you're getting these pieces that are more like, well, we were a lot more urban, right? And you have this context of stories and freedom and the individuals becoming a story in and of themselves, right? It's not the culture or the events anymore. Like, you can have a famous person on and just talk and let's hear more about what they're up to. A group of friends, they can be massively interesting, the ordinary life but it's not as kitschy as I Love Lucy once was. Then you get into American Idol, Lost, The Office. I think The Office would be a really fascinating cultural study of like you have a comedy where they're constantly breaking the fourth wall. So they're like making fun of the genre that they're participating in and kind of building it up enough, but tearing it down at the same time and looking at you going like, isn't this ridiculous? Isn't life ridiculous? Isn't the working mundane like the thing that all of us are going to be doing forever ridiculous and you begin to have like this fabric pulling down and then obviously i jumped ahead by five years to get to the walking dead game of thrones house of cards stranger things and regardless of when the narrative is set you know zombie apocalypse future or fantasy technology with swords and spears it's kind of going towards the same field of corpses. I mean, literally, George R. R. Martin has expressed that that's his end goal, a wasteland with tombstones. And I'm just, that is our, that's the stories that we're currently telling ourselves. And I remember reading in a study how you can uh, learn from that and glean from that what are big cultural fears. And like you were commenting on earlier, how societies need this most stories up till now have been towards some form of redemption, even in Ragnarok or, I mean, the Lord of the Rings. You, you, you just pick a story and it's mostly towards things are, 
restored to what they once were, or they are better than we once knew them. Whereas the stories that we are telling ourselves now, uh, sociologists say that the fears are indicative of a sense of dread uh, permeating that we can't point towards any one thing. So gone are the days of Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark where it's the Nazis and it's like the clear enemies of those last great wars, if wars are actually ever great. Um, you have, you know your enemy's face. Eh, kind of, you know, it's Hitler um, and some other very bad Nazis. And then you get like to the point where they're just sort of zombies and, and it's your neighbor with a kitchen knife and a frying pan. Yeah, zombies are one of my favorites because there's two cycles of the zombie story. You know, and the first was early Cold War era where zombies were super popular, zombie comics were super popular. But the concern was, I kid you not, that the USSR was going to lobotomize everybody and you were going to turn into a worker drone. And so the zombie was a fear about social formation built on the expanding communist empire. And it was like, oh my gosh, they're going to take away our human free will and we'll just be zombies. And it's like, man, that sounds so pastoral compared with the dread that there might be some now catastrophic event that irreversibly changes your life and there's nothing you can do about it. I think that, you know, the dread over the degradation of the earth maps really easily onto the zombie story. The dread over what look like escalating and sort of hopeless foreign conflicts that we see intermittently maps really easily onto the zombie genre where you're like, somebody's going to do something. Bomb, virus, pollution, corruption, whatever your flavor is, and it is going to decimate the world and affect me. And there's like nothing I can do. Much, much less, I don't know, sort of down home than an army of zombie clones like trying to rule the world. Right. And it's not just zombie movies. It's end of the world movies. It's like there's just that rise of the fascination of the end times, left behind, blood moons, uh, people that could, you know, people have always been fascinated by this. Like this has culturally been happening for centuries, millennia, the end of the world. I mean, there have been enough historical events that have felt like it. And yet now that we have the means of communication easier and more widespread, perhaps that's all it is. I think it's not. I think we're telling ourselves more and more and more of these, these stories of the end because not only are we feeling that massive sense of dread from wars with who? Where? Politics that I feel helpless with, tragedies that I'm massively aware of all the time. We talk about compassion fatigue for people these days that are going out and just trying to save the world with justice alone. What about the empathy fatigue simply by being on Facebook? There was an argument. Our arguments were beginning back in, uh, you know, decades ago, actually, that, you know, video games made people more violent, which actually isn't accurate. I think what is more accurate is that the movies and the film and the stories that we see, both fictional and real, do desensitize us to inaction but we keep we i think we get to this point where we have these stories now where we're like just make like where is the end because it feels like it's going to be dark and i hope it's soon it's interesting wait 
Are you saying that I hope it soon is part of the cultural? Yeah, right. Not like I. I mean, I, I want I love for Jesus to come back, but I'm saying I hope it soon is like coming out of the dread of like, well, let the meteor or the ice caps melt or the zombies thing like make make it, make it happen because I'm just holding my breath because I feel like doom is right around the corner. That's interesting. I'm, I feel like that might be. That's like your get things over with personality mapped onto culture. I, <laughs> I don't. Know, I don't know that I had that. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Uh, it's just like a getting a doctor shot. I love that point because loosely looking at a story, things that you would be looking for to sort of orient yourself would be the conflict of what is uh, the discord between opposing elements or parties that is creating a story, that is creating the need for great deeds and to overcome something. And then you can do like the basic things to further yourself like, Basics of setting, where are we? Those questions of where are we coming from? What are we building towards? And then in view of those things, who are the indiv- who are the people involved? And it's, you know, even in Out of the Silent Planet, where C.S. Lewis's first novel in the Space Trilogy, first major novel that he published, um, Ransom, his protagonist, has gone to Mars. Uh, great book. Um, but at one point in the story, he's actually taken... A, out of like the lowlands where the people where the creatures on Mars live up under the highlands that have been destroyed. And he just goes like, aren't you like sort of sad to see that like there there are species that you don't have anymore. There's a whole most of your planet isn't habitable. And like the creatures living there are like, I what do you mean? Like it's it is not God's way that any world lasts forever. And you have Lewis sort of channeling the traditionally Christian a sort of, not indifference, but uh, unruffled response to death, unruffled response to the fact that stories have an end, contrasted against uh, our moment, you could sort of say, what all the stories say together is, we're running out of time. It's probably too late. And after that, there is darkness and nothing. And you just go like, hang on, like, we're not the only culture to go, empires end, things do not last. But we are unique in our dread, the myths with which I'm much familiar, which come out of like Greece and Rome, like you have this like, oh yeah, Olympus is going to go down, but that's not going to be like, it's not like this infinite void after that. We're anticipating like though that act is necessary and though empires diminish, what comes afterwards is, you know, a regeneration of the life that we have lost. And we are pretty unique when we go like, oh shit, we are at the end of this massive, incomprehensible story stretching back hopeless amounts of time and we just happen to find ourselves as the generation poised at the end of everything, an ambiguous dread with which we're living and beyond that, there's no expectation of restoration, which is like, I think it would just blow us away to see how unique that is for human beings, even philosophers, artists, theologians, like to come to that conclusion. It's not necessarily supported. It's not popular across time, uh, but it is pervasive. Mm, yeah, it's good. As we are more aware of the stories that we are telling as a culture right now, that is that this is all there is, right? Like it's the world stuff that Padre's working on right now. 
it's that it, this is also a scary place and that your neighbor who's maybe borrowing your sugar back in the 70s is going to turn into a zombie and come try to eat your face tomorrow. And there is this this isolation, this fear, this end from which all is black, all is nothingness. That's why we got to flee to to Mars to escape the extinction of our species. And I, I don't, I don't say any of these things with you know condemnation because I think there's, I, I enjoy many of these stories and watching them and I have to like be aware of that myself. How many stories there are these days, like Ready Player One and The Matrix of another reality that we are escaping to that is better than this one because this one is bad. And I know that I've done that plenty of times with a book. I mean, there are, there are moments when I go to the woods to escape the reality that is suburbia. That happens. People do those smaller cycles. But what's dangerous is when they become the foundation of reality. And it becomes the like what the story you're telling yourself is, is that there is not really hope. And there is dread and darkness and anger and I don't think many of us need to extrapolate those things, those words from stories to name them about what we experience on Facebook or in the news these days. Like they, they, they feel obvious. And yet I, I love the study of the stories because stories are deeper revealing of our beliefs and of our identities than, than even the things that we say during the day. You know, how are you doing? I'm good. Well, tell me about a story that's happened recently. And in that story, the person's going to actually be so much more real with, well, you know, actually, I, my mother-in-law just da-da-da-da-da, or I got into a car accident the other day and they drove off. Like, the, wait, you just, you're good? But in the story, we reveal what we really believe and who we really think we are. And I do, I love what you're pointing back to, Blaine, of we're meant to be directed towards hope and the recreation of all things, not of abandoning what's here and not of ejecting, pressing in and of a story that actually has a much more surprising and much more hopeful ending. And I love that language that gets used either by Chesterton Lewis of like reality reads like a story and there are gaps in it and we have to try and fill those. And this is Lewis, right? When he put in the story that Christianity was offering, reality read cohesively unlike any other story that was offered that sounds like lewis i don't recognize that quote but that's awesome yeah there's two other i'm just thinking of two the conversation of story makes think of conversations that we have around this which are what are a couple other eccentricities of our story of the story we tell ourselves and i think the two that i'm most aware of are where do heroes come from? And the second one is, what does it mean to live well? What is right action? I'm going to punt to you with the first one, but just to go. Oh, because you know I get really passionate about the stories we're telling ourselves currently. About heroes. About, about heroes. They they're all orphans. Yeah. Like, well, think, think of any and every superhero. All of their parents are dead. They may have had parents, but their parents are all dead now and at a variety of different ages. And now it's up to them to save the world, literally. Well, so, yeah. So we go, uh, who is Aragorn? 
Well, we know because of Legolas, he's the son of Arathorn, and you owe him your allegiance, Boromir. Right. Uh, who is Hercules? Well, he's half-god. Who is Diomedes? Uh, half-god. Who is Aeneas? Uh, half-god. Uh, who is Jesus? Is the line of David. Great freaking example. Right. Like They're in older stories, and even not that old, your lineage matters. And is is something, whether it's good or bad, is something to draw from and respond to. And that these days you have maybe the, the penultimate example recently of who is Ray's parents? They're nobody. They're dead, they're 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 dead somewhere and they were just, you know, junkies. And you're like, really? Another orphan? And this is this is crazy because this actually has like some devastating implications for the way you see people relating with God, because there's this thing that's super important, which, you know, people will say, we are the sons of God. And what I think most people think of is, what you're actually saying is that you, we are the children of God, and that we are either sons or daughters, depending on our gender. And it's like, oh, actually, to be a son of God is less describing uh, the our, like, the fact that we have the Father's delight, the fact that we are children, though that is true, what it's actually talking about is a social reality where the son of the Father, like the firstborn son, had all of the authority to execute the Father's will, and he was actually charged with safeguarding the family. And like the actual, you know, the motive beyond that cultural mode, though it gets distorted by sin, was to protect the family and protect the community. Like, the reason that firstborn sons in a Hebrew context inherited is because they were in the best position to protect and allocate resources for the rest of the family. And you see, because of human sin, that very rarely, basically, never works. (laughs) Nonetheless, we're being told about our story, which is like, yes, you're God's child. You're also God's son, And what we're saying is that part of your identity is you have all of the authority of the Father, both to make decisions in the the estate and the resources of the Father for the safeguarding of everybody who happens to be within your dominion. And that is something that totally flies in the face of you come from nowhere. Like, you're you're a kid from somewhere who becomes a hero and like, that's actually just not a kingdom model. The kingdom model is part of your legacy, which you actually share in the kingdom with Jesus. Part of your legacy determines what you do, determines who you are, like you haven't come from nowhere. The other one is like, in a story, what does it mean to live well? And like, Returning to Lord of the Rings, we all have sort of an intuitive sense that in order for Aragorn to live well, he has to take up the sword of the king. He understands that there is a path set before him that he has to walk out. This is actually really well put in Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, which I didn't like that much. But I did like the part where the older father character asks Robin, are you ready to be who you are? And simply going like, what it means for you to live well in this story is to align yourself to the path that is set for you in your identity, in your history, in your lineage, in your moment. 
And then you just go to like, what is, what's important. And as we recently mentioned in like Kung Fu Panda, like be you. What is great in our cultural thing? Like the heroism is the heroism of of individuality. Like you dared to be whoever you were. And well, definitely like we could get into a massive side trail of that there is great value in that. And that that is like uh, a crazy highest good for a character in a story to like right do your thing versus being like oh shoot no like you're called to a role and if you perform it that will be good if right. you don't something will be lost in the world right we're back to that kind of the, the postmodernism conversation we had and also part to the success conversation that we had of like is there something intended for you and can you live better into that or worse into that and most stories these days say, no, there's nothing intended, you know? You could uh, just survive. Zombies are coming. The winner is the one with the best shot and the most luck. <laughs> or, exactly. or you have, like, Game of Thrones, where you have, like, ultimate meaningless. I, abs- I absolutely detest that story. And yeah. I, uh, for many, many reasons, but one of them is, like, everybody's a little bit good, everybody's a little bit bad, everybody has a tainted motive, but everybody has, a, you know, the ability to act compassionately, and at the end of the day, they all kill each other. And it was, it's like, bro, not only are you sort of a poor judge of story and human nature, like, you have a weak moral imagination and a weak narrative imagination. Like, anybody can put a bunch of, like, bumper cars into a little arena and then write about what happens. It's another thing entirely to go, like, this is what is supposed to happen in this place. We are supposed to see the kingdom of Gondor restored. Those things that support it, awesome. Those things that are trying to wipe out life, bad. Yeah, I was just reading a piece on imagination that uh, George MacDonald wrote. And he's talking about why fairy tales matter as a genre and how they're not just whimsical and how they actually even shouldn't be allegorical. How you're not like stories aren't meant to be teaching. Because he believes that people know things about themselves and reality and that we're meant to tell stories that cause people to remember or identify with those things that they already knew deep within. So rather than trying to teach them that there is a villain and a hero and that there have been wrongs and they can be righted and that there is hope, that you should tell a story that evokes those things and reminds people that it's more like a smelling salt than a sermon. And I, I just so loved that of his posture, both his assumption of some kind of dignity in humanity that they will know and respond to true story and his invitation as creators and engagers to try to find and tell and read the stories that pull us back that direction and remind things in us that we know to be true. 